It is good to be together, isn't it? Spending time together. What a wonderful day it has been around God's Word, in preaching, around the cup. I'm not sure if there needs to be a recount at some point. I mean, I felt that we were smashing it. And then, like, you know, theology, kind of you meant to do okay. And, I think we didn't actually win that bit. I think yeah, I'm not sure quite what was going on. I particularly like the Burnett's group, Trent, myself. I like that one, yeah. Who was the most supreme one of all? Jesus. Who's the second supreme one of all? The Burnett's. That was good. I like that. Um, that, was, that was good. It's not every day that your daughter's boyfriend gets called a dog in public. So, I mean, this day is just getting better and better. I'm loving this. But I think for Emma and I, in all honesty, you know, just to be together as family like this it's just special isn't it it's just so precious of the lord and i want us to assume that everybody just enjoys this together because i'm not sure they do you know i think one of the things that's been stark forever and i and we were chatting about it just earlier on is you guys just seem really tight and it's such a blessing to see that you know when brothers and sisters dwell in unity it brings honor to the Lord. It brings great grace to the church. And it's obvious that that's what you have. Just seeing your kids playing together and hanging out, you're like, man, they're, they're tight. They're a tight group. And I remember when we first planted um, Sovereign Grace Church of Warunga, and it was always for the people in the room, but it was always as well understanding this may never reach lofty heights in our lifetime, but may it reach lofty heights in the kids' lifetime. And to see the kids just enjoying one another, you think, man, I wonder what the Lord will do with them. And as we just build a foundation for them, may we not build in sovereign grace something that they have to rip down. May we build solid foundations where they go, we get it, mum and dad, we get it, let's go. And so it's just wonderful to see what the Lord's already doing in your kids pulling it together. It's just this kindness. And once again, when you call my daughter's boyfriend a dog, it just pleases me in, in every way. I don't even know the context. I don't even need to know. It's just special to my heart. I mean, if this relationship goes on for years, I'll never forget this. Well, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 1. This morning we looked at the supremacy of Christ over all and in all things. And I trust you are just marveling like I was. Jesus is amazing. He is preeminent in all things. You're just staggered when you see yourself in light of who he really is. And I trust by now you have realized this letter does do as advertised. It does indeed take us to fresh and breathtaking new vistas of Jesus who is our life. When we stop and stare at him, you can't, you can't do anything else but just be, you're amazing. And the story now continues with the supremacy of Christ in salvation, which is my title for this message. And so we're going to read the next few verses. We're going to read Colossians 1 from verse 19 through to the end of verse 23. This is the word of the Lord. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Lord, your word is so special to us. And Lord, as we gather around your word this evening, as we see your supremacy and salvation, Lord, I pray that this would be a wonderful and appropriately personal moment for us. That we would realize that you in this story is us. For each and every one of us in the room, it is themselves. Lord, I pray that this evening it would be as if you've got eyes just for one, that everybody would experience that passionate and particular and personal love for them as we all find ourselves in this story. In Jesus' name, amen. Just what do you do when an 18-month-old toddler is stuck down a pipe and she's too deep to reach with your hands and too young to communicate with. Well, that's the challenge that Midland Police encountered in October 1987 when 18-month-old Jessica McClure fell down an eight-inch wide abandoned water well and was lodged there for three days. She had fallen 22 feet down this 8-inch wide pipe. She'd only stopped because as the pipe really began to open up to 18 inches, there was a piece of debris that she got stuck on with her leg above her head. And so she hung suspended with a leg above her head in an 8-inch pipe dangling over what was a 67-foot drop right underneath her. Police Sergeant Andy Glascock wrote about the scene when he arrived to encounter young Jessica. Nobody understood the magnitude of it. You couldn't even begin to comprehend it. There was a small backyard with a little metal pipe sticking out of it. No one could believe that someone could fall down that, but they had. And it was as you heard the crying that you realized someone was really down there. Upon arrival, a few officers began a desperate attempt to try and free Jessica by digging with anything in sight as other units and firefighters were called to the scene. They were making basically no progress trying to free her, and so eventually realized they would need someone with real expertise to try and get her out. They contacted a man named David Lilly, who was a veteran engineer who worked with the U.S. Department of Mine Safety. This man had years of experience rescuing trapped miners. The problem was he was in New Mexico, and so it would take time to get him there. Meanwhile, everyone already at the scene started to put their heads together to figure out what to do. There was a backhoe there, and so someone tried to dig a hole, but that didn't work. The earth was too hard. They then decided to drill a hole next to the well and dig across to it. They thought it would be accomplished in an hour. Instead, it went on and on and on. More rescue teams, spectators, and media began to show up all at this time. The hardest part in it all was that you could hear her crying. It was a scared whimper, like she was not sure what was going on. I have children, he writes, and there was no way once you heard her voice that you could leave her there until the end of it. 
As I listened to Jessica cry, I thought about my own children. My wife and I raised four kids of our own and adopted one more. I'm a child type of guy, so I couldn't listen to the crying too long without getting tears in my own eyes. Finally, David Lilly, the expert in rescuing miners, arrived and he too soon met several obstacles. The rock beside the well was prehistoric rock that would take almost two days to cut through. They were making horrendously slow progress, drilling down at only two inches per hour. Finally, Lily said that this wasn't going to work as it was, and so they would need a high-pressure water blasting drill. The nearest one was all the way across the state of Texas, and so they had it immediately put on a plane. When the drill arrived, they began drilling very successfully, and after three days of drilling down, they began to dig across by hand. It was tedious, but finally they got to the pipe, drilled a hole through it, and the first rescuer reached up and touched Jessica's toe. The first actual rescue attempt was to prove unsuccessful. They had trouble getting into the open shaft in a way that could actually free her, and so they just couldn't get her out. The team came back up to the surface to reevaluate and regroup, and at that point they realized there was no plan B. They had to get her out one way or another, even if they had to break her leg to get her out, as she just wasn't going to be able to stay there for much longer. The second time they went into the shaft, everything at the surface was very tense. Then up came one of the rescue workers, holding baby Jessica in his arms. I immediately fell on my knees and started crying. Everyone was crying, tears of gladness, and there was joy on every face. For baby Jessica had been saved. You know, I never forget the first time I heard that story some years ago. It, it deeply affected me. The story itself deeply affected me, as you think, as a dad, how horrendous that would be to know that your daughter is down this pipe and no one seems to be able to get her out. And you can't help but imagine the joy it would have been when they finally do get her out. What a celebration that would be. Surely you would be talking about that day for the rest of your days. I was affected by the story itself, but I was also affected. Because in so many ways, this story was an immediate reminder of an even greater rescue. A rescue that involved me. And a rescue that changed my life forever. And it's that great rescue that these verses are all about the greatest rescue ever told. The rescue that would involve you and me. And a rescue that would indeed change our lives forever. And I thank God that he's given us this piece of scripture just so we can slow ourselves down and walk through memory lane, realizing who we were, realizing what he has done and realizing what that all means. What a rescue this is. So I have three points this evening, but really just one hope, a hope that we will be freshly amazed all over again by what Jesus has done in his supremacy in the midst of our great salvation. Here's my first point then from verse 21, the tragic reality of our past. It says there in verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. 
You see, my friends, we also have a wonderful rescue story to tell, do we not? As Christians, our story is invaluable. It is incredible in every way. And I want you to notice, as Paul talks about this great rescue right here, I want you to notice the very deliberate transition here from the third-person language in verses 15 through 20 to the deeply personal language, second-person language, in verse 21. In verse 19, we read, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And verse 21, And you is now just on you. This is your story. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He's reminding us of who we were, and the story is indeed tragic. When you just pay attention to the text and you understand this was our reality, it doesn't make good reading. He says, listen, heads up, you were once alienated. What that means is once upon a time, you were far, far, far away from God. A condition that was abiding, a persistent, an ongoing state. You were cut off from God. You were down the mine. You were Jessica. And what's more, you were down the mine and you were hostile in mind. See, this continuous alienation from God then expressed itself in a mind that was hostile to him. This was the posture of all our minds before God once upon a time. It wasn't just that we were alienated before him. No, we were angry with him. We were hostile to him. We're fine with the creation. We like the kingdom, but we don't want the creator. We don't want you as our king. I want to do my thing. I want me to be the center of my life. We were hostile in our minds before him. And that hostility then came out, Paul tells us, by the reality that you were doing evil deeds. It doesn't just stay with alienation and hostility. It then concludes in doing evil deeds. And we all, without exception, my friends, that was our story. He doesn't say here, apart from a few of you that happen to be saved from birth, you're sweet throughout. No, he's saying all of you. You were hostile in mind. You were alienated from God. You were angry with God. And you were doing evil deeds. With all, without exception, this was our reality when we were hostile in our opposition towards the Lord. And in Ephesians 2 verse 3, Paul goes on to tell us that by nature then, we were objects of his wrath. My friends, our situation, your situation, this is personal to you, could not have been more serious. You were down that pipe, uninterested in the Lord, dead in your transgressions and sins, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and an object of his holy and righteous wrath. That was the tragic reality of your life. And I submit to you there is nothing more frightening in all reality to consider than the reality of God's wrath. And we do not do this text justice if we don't stop and stare for a moment at what God's wrath is all about. Because we were all, by very nature, once objects of it. 
You see, the diamond of the gospel will never dazzle us until we see the black velvet behind it. And the black velvet behind it is the wrath of God. D.A. Carson says this about God's wrath. He says in the Bible, God's wrath is a function of his holiness. His wrath or anger is not the explosion of a bad temper or a chronic inability to restrain his irritability, but rather a just and principled opposition to sin. God's holiness is so amazingly glorious that it demands that he be wrathful with those of his creatures who defy him, sly his majesty, turn their noses at his words and works, and insist on their own independence, even though every breath they breathe, not to mention their very existence, depends on his providential care. If God were to gaze at sin and rebellion, shrug his shoulders and mutter, well, I'm not too bothered. I can forgive these people. I don't really care what they do. Surely there would be something morally deficient about him. Should God care nothing of Hitler's outrages? Should God care nothing of my rebellion or your rebellion? If he acted this way, he would ultimately discount his own significance, sully his own glory, besmirch his own honor, and soil his own integrity. And so he would. See, it's so easy and I think common in our day and age to perceive and treat God as if he's like a genie in the lamp or some Santa Claus figure. He's the nice guy of the universe. And so I'll gather around him now and again and I'll ask for something because he's got these big rosy cheeks and I'm sure he'll help me in my life. And so we live as if that's the story. He's just this perpetual nice guy. And my friends, he is nice. <laughs> we serve a king who is full of love, who is full of grace, and who is full of mercy. But we must also understand he's also full of holiness. He's also full of justice and righteousness. And where God's holiness and our sin collide, the inevitable outcome in that moment is wrath. Because he's holy above and beyond us in purity in every single way. And when he sees our rebellion then in his holiness and justice, we have to be an object of his wrath. And that was all of us. The writer of Hebrews then says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In Revelation, John then carries it on, for the day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now it's funny, every now and again you have a service at church and you know, you end up in a text where you're preaching what people perceive to be hellfire and brimstone. The challenge is, the reality is, there is hellfire and brimstone in the Bible. You're not trying to scare people falsely. It's a reality. You are down the mine. And we all were once upon a time. Listen, God's wrath is real. God's wrath is frightening. God's wrath is serious. And we were by nature objects of it. Are you aware of that for yourself? That in your testimony, however you describe it, one of the things you could be saying is, as for me in my life, I was once an object of his wrath. I was down the mine. I was alienated from him. I was hostile in mind. Because that's the reality of who you were. That was your standing before God. But that's not where we stayed, is it? Because where Paul goes on to help us see in verse 21 and 22, what we see then is the divine reality 
of our present. That's my second point, the divine reality of our present. And oh my goodness, what a happy discovery, verses 21 and 22 are. Listen to this. It says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Is this not good news? You who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds down the pipe, unable to do anything about it, he has now. I mean, if there's three words in the Bible you want to enjoy, he has now. I am stuck. I am hostile. I am uninterested. Well, he has now. He has come after you. He has reconciled you. He's come after you on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And he did it all through the reconciliation that he brought through his body of flesh by his death. Listen, the only way he can get us out of that pipe is by coming down the pipe after us and pulling us out, but remaining there himself. That's what the great exchange was. It wasn't just both coming up and celebrating. No, the grand realization of the gospel is he stayed. Because the only way I could get to the surface is by him staying. It's a staggering reality. But that's the gospel. That's the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 we read, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's amazing, isn't it? It's what the great exchange is all about. He never deserved to be down the pipe. I got there all by myself, and I didn't give a stuff about him. But he came after me, and he opened my eyes, and he took me up to the top, and he remained there himself. He took the fall for me. What incredible love. My friends, in the same way this rescue mission is personal as we examine the and you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, we must also understand and you he came after. You are not just a number, you are a name. He came after you individually. And in verse 22, wonderfully, Paul tells us about what the fruit of that is. He says, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order. He's done something. Well, it's to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. <laughs> it's amazing. He brings us to the surface and he says, hey, listen, we're not just going to carry on equal. Take my royal clothes and place them on you. Because you're going to be a child of God now. I'm going to go down the mine for you. But I want you to take my clothes. And because of that, because of what he did in our place, we have now been declared before the Father to be holy. This would have been a staggering statement for the church in Colossae. Prior to this moment, they would have only heard that phrase talked about as Jewish people. This is a bunch of Gentiles. They're people like us. And they're learning, I can be holy. I can be declared to be a saint. He's saying, absolutely you can. Because that's what God did for you through the personal work of Jesus Christ. He's now declared you to be holy, blameless. He has washed you clean of your sin. You are completely above reproach before the Father. 
You have been now declared righteous before the King of kings and Lord of lords. Boldly you may come into his presence. You are now a child of God. It will never change. Because I came down the pipe for you. And I brought you out. And now you're good with him. And I'm going down. Sam Storms wonderfully says it this way about this reality. He says, no matter where you are, what you are spiritually will never change. I love that. You may be at work, at play, overseas, under the weather, or out of money, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. You may be down in the dumps, over the hill, or beside yourself, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. You may be in paradise or in prison, at the movies or in Chicago, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. Listen, for your feelings and physical location has no effect on your spiritual identity. Isn't that amazing? He has come after you down the mine. He has saved you by his grace. And whatever you feel and wherever you be, your spiritual identity in him will never change. Holy, blameless, above reproach. See, this is why when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward we must look to see him who saved us. Upward we must look to see him who paid away for all of our sin. We must run to verse 22 when Satan tempts us with past sin, the reality of who we were. We must say, yeah, but I see here that I was once alienated and hostile in mind, but now I've been presented holy and blameless and above reproach. It's a standing before God. It doesn't change depending on how we feel about it or where we are. It's a done deal. The gavel of the judges come down in your life, not guilty. It's done. He has saved you. Sam Storms once again says, We need to fight the paralyzing power of past transgressions with the promise of what Christ has now done. So when your conscience is pricked by the memory of past failures and sin, a simple cry of, but now, or he has now, will bring healing and hope. And so it will, my friends. Satan will always seek to tempt you to despair. He will always seek to remind you. But that's not who you really are. That's not who you really are. I know you. I remember what you did. You need to pull out verse 22 and remind yourself, you know what? That's who I used to be. But I've now been declared holy and blameless and above reproach before God. It is a scandal of grace, but it's what he's done for me. And it ain't going to change. Because he saved me by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Such a great rescue mission. Now, folks, I wouldn't want you then to get unhelpfully and wrongly distracted by verse 23. See, in verse 23, it says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, it can appear in the English that maybe this is a question of concern. That maybe it's like, you know what, he did all this, maybe, but we'll see whether you finish or not. It's not the way it's written in the Greek. In the Greek, this is not a question of concern. This is a question of celebration. Because what Paul, in the way he's actually written it, is as if to say this, Peter O'Brien says it this way, it's like to say, at any rate, if you stand firm in the faith, as I'm sure you will. That's the way it's written in the Greek. 
It's written as an understanding of, I know you are going to make it. How does he know this? Well, the Apostle Paul knows too well that all that the Father has given Jesus, he will lose none. That's what we read in John chapter 6 and John chapter 18. Paul understands that we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he knows only too well that we have been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Listen, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance. You've literally been sealed with the king. You know, in these ancient times, although it still happens today, there was a seal of the king. It was his signet ring. And so there'd be wax and you'd seal it. If you put that on something, that was your property. That's what he's talking about with the Holy Spirit. I've given you the Holy Spirit as a seal guaranteeing your inheritance. And he's actually explained, if we were listening um, earlier on, in chapter 1, very early on, he tells him several times, I've seen the Spirit at work in you. Correct. So what he's saying, listen, is listen. At any rate, if you stand firm in the faith, as I'm sure you will, because I've seen the Holy Spirit at work in your life, he's at the deposit guaranteeing in your inheritance, I know you're going to make it, so this is your story. He's completing the whole thing. This isn't a question of concern. It is a question of celebration, actually. Saying, if indeed you make it, and I know you will, this is your story. You were down the mine. He saved you by his grace. He's declared you holy and blameless and above reproach. And you're going to be singing this truth till your dying day, until you're around the throne of grace, because the Holy Spirit is all over you guys. It's such an amazing story, isn't it? This is a divine reality that he wanted them to know to be true for all their lives. And my friends, this is here. Because God wants us to know that this is a divine reality for our lives as well. This is the greatest rescue mission ever told. It's a rescue that involves me and involves you. And it's a rescue that would no doubt change our lives forever. And so point three, just to close, how do we respond? I mean, we've just toured together this incredible rescue mission and you realize it's you. How do you respond to such staggering news? Well, there's just two thoughts I have for you that I think are totally in keeping with the book of Colossians that I want to really encourage you. Here's how you respond, I think, to this incredible news. Number one, you respond with great humility before the Lord. Great humility. Mark Webb says it this way. He says, God intentionally designed salvation so that no man might boast of it. He didn't merely arrange it so that boasting would be discouraged or kept to a minimum. He planned it so boasting would be absolutely excluded. He did well. Honestly, friends, I... I honestly think Christians should be the most humble people on the entire planet. I think Christians should be people that are walking into church, shaking their heads, amazed that they get to be there at all. Amazed. Because you realize, hey, what did I bring to this church? Well, let me think. Um, I was stuck down a mine for a long time. And I didn't care about him. In fact, I wasn't bothered about Jesus at all. But then he turned up in my life and he saved me by his grace. And now it, 
I'm declared holy and, and blameless and above reproach. I'm staggered. Hey, how can I serve? I'll do anything. I don't mind. I'll sit in the back. I'm cool, man. I'm just pleased to be with you. Christians, I think, should be the most humble people you ever meet because this is the effect of walking through the reality of your story. There's no proud people that stand at the edge of the mine and go, man, I did good. Check it out. I, I can understand this. Really? I can't. I can't understand why he came after me. I'm amazed. can't understand it. I think the way we respond to this story, number one, is with great humility before the Lord. And with number two, I think we also respond with great gratitude towards the Lord. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, to know from, my, from eternity <clears throat> my maker for seeing my sin, for loved me and resolved to save me, though it would be at the cost of Calvary. To know that the divine son was appointed from eternity to be my savior, and that in love he became man for me and died for me, and now lives to intercede for me and will one day come in person to take me home. To know that the Lord, who loved me and gave himself up for me, and who came and preached peace to me through his messengers, has by his spirit raised me from spiritual death to life-giving union and communion with himself, and has promised to hold me fast and never let me go. Listen, this is knowledge that brings overwhelming gratitude and praise. And so it should. In the same way I submit to you, Christians should be the most humble people on the planet. They should also be the most joyful people on the planet. You should engage with a Christian and think, oh my word, that is a joyful person. And they're not a joyful person because everything is rosy in their life. We live in the same world as everybody else. They are a joyful person because they realize, as for me, I was down the mine. My life was down there. I was dead in my transgressions and sins, hostile in mind. I was in enmity with God, but he saved me by his grace, even though that meant the cost of his son. And now I'm forgiven and redeemed and adopted into his family. Heaven is my home. This is ridiculous grace. Let me tell you all about it. And all the glory goes to you. Christians should be incredibly joyful. Now you may push back on that and go, well, what about people when they suffer? Examine the Apostle Paul. We will examine him in much greater depth in the morning because it is such a part of his ministry. But he was well acquainted with trial and difficulty. He is writing this in prison. You think COVID lockdown was bad? It ain't as bad as this guy. He's constantly in prison. He's going nowhere. And in chapter 1 verse 4, then chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 15, chapter 3, verse 17, and chapter 4, verse 2. Every time he says, be thankful, be gracious, be filled with joy. Because the apostle Paul, even in the midst of everything else he has going on in his life, understands who he once was and what Christ has done for him. And so as far as he's concerned, listen, we all have 10,000 reasons to praise. Because of what Jesus has done. Look at what he's done. Behold your God. And then respond with great gratitude towards him. In October 1987, 18-month-old Jessica McClure fell down an eight-inch wide water well. 
and was lodged there for three days. It was a bleak circumstance. But what a happy day it was when she was rescued and saved. Her story is incredible. But I submit to you, it's got nothing on your story. Your story is scandalous and staggering, Grace. You were once alienated from the Lord, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But now you are reconciled in his, body, in his body of flesh by his death. And the result of that is you have been declared before the Father to be holy and blameless and above reproach. May we never lose the wonder of our story. And may we never lose the wonder that all of the story only happened because he is supreme in all reconciliation and salvation. Once again, it's all him. So would all glory go to him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, once again, as we gather around your word, we are amazed with you. Lord, as we visually think about what happened to baby Jessica, Lord, would we increasingly in our lives picture ourselves down that pipe as well. It was us. A million miles away from you. Uninterested in you. Alienated from you. Hostile to you. Lord, the only conversations we were having were between us wagging our fingers at you. And yet while we were your enemies, you came after us to make us friends. Lord, to consider that the only way for us to get out the pipe was by you staying down there. Oh Lord, would we be amazed by that? Would our hearts brim over with gratitude and praise to you? Lord, would this bear the fruit of humility and joy in our lives? Lord, we thank you. Lord, I thank you that having took the floor, the fall and stayed down the pipe for us after three days, you rose again. You are now seated at the right hand of the Father where you're ruling all things with supremacy and preeminence. So Lord, we return to you now in praise to say thank you. And Lord, we can't wait to see your face with our own eyes and to say thank you to you personally. Lord, would we live every day in between, never losing the wonder. In Jesus' name, amen.